It was a busy day in the trauma center, and uh, we got a call, and uh, an 18-year-old named Frank, uh, who'd been riding his motorcycle, uh, got, was about to get into a left turn lane, and a car in front of him cut him off. Everything was okay, but uh, he was furious at getting cut off. And so, as he was uh, sitting there, seething, almost touching the bumper of the guy in front of him, the guy didn't even know that any of this had happened, had no clue. So he's back there hollering and yelling and cursing, and, and, uh, and he is so upset that as they finally get their left turn lane, they go, they move forward. He's right on this guy's bumper, and somehow his leathers got stuck in the bumper uh, and uh, flips him off his bike, and the driver has no idea that he's dragging him by his leathers on the bumper. And so cars turn around, come, are honking at this driver who has no idea that he's dragging this 18-year-old boy behind his car. And finally, they honk him, get him to stop. Uh, short story, Frank came in unconscious. We did everything we could to save him, but he died in the operating room. Uh, in my career, that, that's one story of hundreds, at least. Um, if I've learned anything, I've learned that anger makes you stupid. And I realize nowadays that's not a word that you're supposed to use, but you need to understand it. I'm not using this in the derogatory sense. I'm using it in the precisely scientific sense. Anger makes you stupid. Think about it. Anger makes you do things that in your right mind you would never dream of doing. If your mind was right, if you hadn't been turned stupid by sinful anger, you would never dream of doing some of the things that can happen. And when this happens, the cost can be incredibly high. From anger comes pain, broken relationships, physical injuries, prison sentences, children move from homes, divorce, and in Frank's case and many others, sometimes even death. Now, the Bible says a lot about anger, but one of the most intriguing verses in all of Scripture, I think this is probably in your notes, um, is Ephesians 4.26. Here's, here's the phrase, look at this, and it'll be on the screen also. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Look at that. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Now, this is such a striking verse because it says something that sounds very unbiblical. Be angry. That doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? Um, so what does it mean when it says, be angry, but don't sin? And here's what it mean, means. I'll unpack it in three anger precepts. And uh, there are, if you don't have your notes, they're, uh, they're scattered throughout the worship center. Here you go. Here's your first blanks. Anger precept number one. There's an aspect of anger that isn't sinful. That's not even implied. It's really stated in the text, right? Be angry, but don't sin. So this is the physiology of anger. You can't control your adrenal glands. The very fact that you're human means that you have a sympathetic nervous system. Now, I knew on your way to church this morning, you probably turned to each other and said, you know, probably Dr. Dan will talk about the sympathetic nervous system this morning. Now, now it probably wasn't at the top of your mind, but, but what this means is um, you're human. So certain events happen, and the adrenals especially, there are other parts of uh, the brain also that do that, but the adrenals 
give you adrenaline or epinephrine. Is this, is this me? Sorry about that. That makes me mad. Just a little holy, holy humor there. Um, okay, so um, I'll have to be a caged cat and not uh, move very much here. So um, what happens when epinephrine is secreted into your, in your, in your bloodstream? Your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, you become hyper alert. This fight or flight mechanism is normal. So your respiratory rate increases. All of these things happen, and the physiology of fight or flight is normal. It's part of being human, and so what is important to understand is the adrenals in and of themselves are not a spiritual issue, right? The fact that you have an adrenaline response is part of being human. In fact, it would have even been part of Adam and Eve before they fell. Okay, so it doesn't imply any spiritual connotation at all. Anger precept number two, what you do in response to the physiology, that's the key. What you do in response to the physiology is what can become sin. This is when anger can go from being a physical internal reaction to being disobedient and harmful. And number three, here's your blank, anger becomes sin when we fail to allow God to be in control of our verbal or physical response to our feelings and physiology. That's a long one, so let me say it again. Anger becomes sin when we fail to allow God to be in control of our verbal or physical response. That's the key, our response to our feelings and physiology. So this morning, we're gonna learn from Scripture what it teaches about dealing with anger, and we'll start by looking at the life of King Saul. If you have your Bibles, turn to First. Samuel, so you've got the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, all about 20% into the, into the word. Turn to 1 Samuel, uh, right after a super famous uh, uh, part of the, of the scripture here. And um, what we're going to see here is Saul's going to show us how anger can literally alter the very course of our life. So we pick up the story right after David has killed Goliath and saved Israel. Look with me at near the end, the last couple of verses of chapter 17 of of 1 Samuel, look at this. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought before him Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Yuck. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now Saul was so impressed with David at this point, he took him into his household and made him one of the leaders of Israel's armies. And look what happens here, verse five. So David went, excuse me, of chapter 18 now. David went out whenever he, Saul sent him and uh, prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of the city of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So what an incredible day. What an incredible celebration. This is, this is one of the high points of Saul's life, right? They're singing and dancing and celebration. Everybody's high-fiving. This is a victory parade. This was literally, ready? This was the day that every king dreamed of. Great, huge celebration. And God had been in the midst and done amazing things and it was a great miracle, all of this uh, going on. And now we hear the song 
that they sing. It's a great song. Look at this, verse seven. And the women sang as they played and they said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his 10,000s. Now stop for a second before we go on. I want us to notice something. This song is only partially correct. The lyrics about Saul are true. Is, it, is the text still up there? So what it says about Saul is true, right? Saul has had a storied military career, and he undoubtedly has had, had, had victory over thousands in his career, but what it says about David is actually completely false, right? David had, pilled, had killed a big guy, but that's one, right? So Saul has killed thousands. David has killed one guy, okay? So the song was hyperbole, right? That's what happens when you win the championship, you know, you're the be- you have the best team in history, right? All of those kind of things. That's what happens when people celebrate because Israel had been held captive to Goliath's taunting for so long, the song was exaggerating, but you can understand. For 40 days, they all thought they were gonna be in huge trouble and this celebration is, they're, they're, okay, they're over the top celebrating. So Saul, here's the key. Saul didn't even need to respond to this nonsensical little ditty of a song, did he? It was just saying stuff. It was like posters. Most of them aren't true, right? It wasn't a big deal at all. But unfortunately, this event was an inflection point in Saul's life. Watch what happens. Look at verse eight. Then Saul became very angry. If you're an underliner, underline that. Everything changes. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more, look at the leap, the intellectual leap that happens. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? I mean, you realize it's made him stupid, hasn't it? Look at this. Then, uh, uh, and Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. From this point, everything in Saul's life changes. The anger that Saul harbored in response to this event literally changed all of the rest of his life. Now let's think about what what way Saul should have responded. Look at the situation before David arrived. The mighty giant has brought Saul to his knees. Israel is in big trouble. His kingdom is on the ropes. The Philistines were gonna defeat his nation and make them slaves again like they had been in Egypt. This was bad time. But God sent this young shepherd boy to deliver them. So Saul Saul should have recognized that David was God's salvation for his kingdom. Everything about what David did was a good thing. And that's exactly what he would have thought if, if church, his focus had remained God. But instead, look what happened. Anger was the catalyst that took Saul's eyes off of God. And let me show it graphically, and this is in your notes. Notice, notice here. Saul's life was supposed to, he was the king of Israel. He was supposed to be, he started as a humble man. He was an anointed man. They they found him in the baggage uh, closet, right? Because he was so afraid to go to his own coronation. 
And God had done some amazing things through Saul, even though God was not happy that the people wanted a king. Saul had been, done some good things. But look at this. That's where it was supposed to be. Always on God. Always on God. It doesn't matter what, how many Philistines there are. It doesn't matter how many people who don't like me. None of that matters. It should have been on God. But now write in your blank, you insert anger, and all of a sudden, Saul's focus on God now goes on David. The rest of his life, the right word arrows here describe everything else that Saul cares about for the rest of his life. So listen, that's what sinful anger does. It takes the focus off of God and it redirects it onto people. And then what do we do? We rehearse, we rehearse what happened. We spend emotional energy on blaming others for our situation or our difficulties. And this leads to a key concept. Here's your blanks, write it in. Anger changes God-centeredness to self-centeredness. Look what happened with Saul. From the moment the text said, remember I said circle that or underline it, when the text says, then Saul became very angry. Everything, all of his focus, anger consumes him, everything changes. He abandoned, literally, if you read the, the next 10 or 12 chapters, you literally find that he abandoned the duties of the throne in a maniacal attempt to kill David. That's become, he doesn't care about the Philistines anymore or the other armies or the enemies. All he cares about is this guy he's angry with. And this led to three great tragedies in Saul's life. Let's look at the first one. In chapter 18, look down at verse 20, a new paragraph there. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. Remember that. She loved David. When they, they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, and look what goes on in his mind. And Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. In other words, marry Michael, my daughter. Verse 22, then Saul commanded his servants, wanted to make sure he really gets this deal sealed, right? Speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you. Notice all the lying and the deceit here. Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So think about this passage. It shows us tragedy number one. Here's your blank. Ready? Write it in. Saul was willing to ruin his daughter's life to get back at David. Amazing. Can you imagine betraying your own daughter by manipulating her love? But that's exactly the kind of thing that anger does. And this gives us key, the key concept, write it in, ready? Anger results in consequences that are completely out of proportion to the initiating event. What happens? Anger escalates over relatively trivial things. What begins as something hardly worth remembering at all can become the initiator of terrible things. That's what happened with Saul. Everything with Saul was driven by a little song that wasn't even true. Think about that. It was trivia. But look at the consequence. He ended up ruining his daughter's life. Now, have you ever had an argument that began over something really trivial? All of us, of course, have. 
right? It starts with something really trivial. It's the carpet color, right? It's something trivial. And um, then it became about bigger things. Who's in control? Am I getting enough respect? Right now, remember, it's about whatever, carpet color or chocolate versus vanilla, right? It's not about something of anything, but it becomes about having your way. And by the end, what began as a trivial thing ended up being a big blowout. You almost can't remember what you actually started with because now it's about I want my way and you're getting in the way or whatever things that make us really mad. So there it is. Anger can result in consequences that are completely out of proportion to the initiating event. Somebody doesn't see a motorcyclist, probably didn't even intentionally cut the motorcyclist off. There's a big blind spot for motorcycles. By the way, something you can learn today. You know, side light, this is for free. 25 years in the trauma center. Um, you know, feel, feel free to do, uh, you know, to jump off of cliffs and ride motorcycles, all that kind of stuff, because they are very dangerous. And so, but notice, this is probably completely inadvertent, and the kid ends up dead. That's what happens. Trivia can become incredibly consequential. So let's return to Saul's story. Now in that day in the military, the custom was that leaders would sit down together for meals. That's when they would conference about their military planning. So, so Saul now uh, plans to kill David and he's going to do it at dinner when all the military leaders sit down. But Jonathan, Saul's son, good friend of David, but completely unknowing, David just comes to Jonathan says, hey, my family's having, it sounds like a reunion back in Bethlehem. Can I go be with my family? And he says, sure, you can go. I'll tell, I'll tell dad, right? Um, and uh, Saul's, Saul finds out, as you'll see here, that Jonathan has let David go. Remember, Saul's plan was to kill David at the military dinner. So look in chapter 20. You're in chapter 18. Just turn over to chapter 20 now and look with me. At verse 30, chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. Remember the setup? Jonathan's just saying, of course you can go be at your family reunion. No big deal. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan and he said to him, look what breaks out now. (laughs) You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. What? Notice what happens with anger. He just said, yeah, go to the family reunion. Little tiny thing. But because Saul, anger is driving Saul, now guess what? Now he disrespects and demeans his own wife. All of these things start happening. So there it is. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? What in the world it has to do with mom's nakedness? Who knows? But notice, he's lost it. He's completely lost it. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he surely must die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and he said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul, ready? Saul hurled his spear at him, Jonathan, his own son, to strike him down. So Jonathan knew, Jonathan's a bright guy, as you can see here. Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Real, real clear thinking there on Jonathan's part. So ready, tragedy number two. Saul nearly killed his own son because of his anger toward David. 
Now, after this, David hears this and, of course, is on the run. And you can see chapter after chapter of David hiding and on the run. So he went to a place called Nob. And there, Nob was one of the city of the priests, of the Levites. Uh, the high priest, excuse me, the chief priest for that city at that point, the high priest was in Jerusalem, of course, but at, at Nob, um, you see Ahimelech, and he helped David. But of course, Ahimelech had no idea that this whole thing between Saul and David was going on, and, and David was highly favored in the kingdom. My goodness, he had just saved Israel and saved the king. So Ahimelech was happy to give David his provisions, what he needed, and food, and then sent him on his way. But Saul heard about this and went to Nob. And let's look at Saul's response when they found that the priests had helped David. Chapter 22. If you are not familiar with this section, you are going to have your mind blown in this section. Ready? Verse 16, chapter 22. But the king said, you surely must die, Ahimelech, the priest who's helped David, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death because their hand is also with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. That, of course, was not even true. Saul's making that up in his anger. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. So Saul has this guy who he is completely loyal to Saul. Then king, the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests and killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Is this incredible? So here's tragedy number three. Write it in. The king of God's people... The king of God's people became a mass murderer all because of anger. And from here on, Saul's life became darker and darker. His kingdom became a train wreck. He left death and carnage everywhere he went. And in chapter 31, the Philistines wiped out his army, killed his three sons, and Saul ended his life by falling on his own sword. So the anointed one of Israel, the one that was supposed to lead God's kingdom and God's people, committed suicide at the end of a misguided, wasted, defeated life. And it all began on a great day, but where he became deeply angry. So let's look at our applications. Number one, here's your blank. Once anger takes hold, once anger takes hold, its intensity and consequences are progressive. Now, some of you right now need to be thinking, oh, Lord, I've started down this road. There's a situation or there are names. There may be people who, when you two walk into the room together, there's not two of you, there's three of you. There's this event that happened, right? There's something else in the room. There's something that has changed everything. So, once anger takes hold, its intensity and consequences are progressive. In Saul's life, the situation began as a mere annoyance a song that wasn't even true. But once he acted on his anger, he went from ruining his daughter's life to almost murdering his own son to killing hundreds of innocent people. Progression. It gets worse. Completely out of proportion. 
This kind of progression can actually take hold in anyone's life. Now, I suspect no one here is a mass murderer. But the seed, remember, the seed, that's why Jesus said, don't be angry at your brother. Sinful anger. Because the seed of murder, where some people will lead all the way to murder, the seed is evil that ends up there. So even if you don't end up with this consequence, the seed is still an evil seed. This can happen. It tends to spread and progress. Watch this. What you eat and raisin bran? Don't we have any more lucky charms? No. Uh -uh. That's too bad because you know how they're magically delicious, you know? Yeah? Bunny. Uh huh. First, give it back. Why don't you just come and get it? Oh, it's on. Bring it. Okay, <laughs> the video, some of you woke up to, to, to see that part. Um, the video's a joke, but it illustrates what can happen with anger, doesn't it? A dispute over what? A cereal box leads to a fight between brothers, and then the younger sister turns into the evil emperor trying to kill them both, right? And then even the toddlers join in trying to cut their brothers up with lightsabers, Anger is funny on this, but in life, that is very instructive, isn't it? Okay, so 
Application number one, once anger takes hold, its intensity and consequences are progressive, but here's the good news. Application number two, write it in. You can win the battle over your anger. How? How can we have victory over anger? It takes three steps. Write it in. Number one, I take responsibility for my anger. Let me give you some statements that most of us have made about anger, but this isn't true. Probably all of us have said it, but it's not true. They made me mad. My wife, my husband, my friend, my boss, my kids. And when we say this, we're implying that there's something about someone else that deserves the blame for my response. In other words, my anger is their fault. But here's our wrong assumption. Here's your blank. Write it in. Someone else is the cause of my anger problem. Here's what a lot of people think. I can't control my anger. I, maybe I have a bad temper. It's just the way I am. And in fact, some of us might even blame God for it. God just made me high strung. That's just kind of the way I am. There's nothing I can do about it. There's a, there's a very technical theological term for this from the scripture, baloney. It's not true. Our sin is not someone else's fault. Now, they may have invoked us. It may even be danger. We might need to make choices that, that lead us to get out of an unsafe situation. But our response, our sinful anger response is no one else's responsibility. Let me, um, let me give you a, a really remarkable, I think, key concept that might help all of us, even though it puts responsibility on us, write it in. While anger is initially a physiological response, while anger is initially a physiological response, acting on my anger is a choice. Let me illustrate. You're at home, something ticks you off, right? So you're, here you are ranting and raving, and in the middle of your tirade, the phone rings, and you answer it and you say, hello, oh, John, couldn't be better. Yeah, having a great day. How about you? Notice, instantaneously, instantaneously, you made a choice to turn off your rage and turn on a very nice voice. The physiological response you can't control, but we can control our response. But, but, having victory over anger requires step number two. Write it in. Develop a relationship of accountability with at least one other believer. You should have a person if you know this is a part of your life, you should have a person that asks you frequently whether you've had a recent outburst or problem. Give them the right to tell you that you've made a choice to let your anger become sin. This is painful, right, having somebody like this in your life, but let them remind you that you're hurting people that you say you love. Here's one of the great problems with anger. Most of us can hide it from almost everyone except this inner group who gets the anger. So anger tends to be a hidden sin except to those who it damages. And here's a key concept, write it in. Victory, this is important for all of us, whatever it might be, but victory over secret sin requires someone to know your secret. Victory over secret sin requires someone to know your secret. Now you might be thinking, no problem, my family knows all about my anger. <laughs> Listen, they're not your accountability partners, they're your victims. Somebody who has the right to get in your face. 
is needed to press you, press you, press you on this issue. And if you really want to have victory over anger, you need step three, right? Take responsibility, have somebody who asks you and gets in your grill about it, And number three, step number three, recognize that you need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to have victory over anger. You see, uh, with a lot of discipline and effort, you might be able to control your anger, but you'll never have victory over your anger with mere willpower. Only the infilling Holy Spirit can do that. So let me just show you how, how clear scripture is on this. You may be familiar with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's an amazing section of scripture and look at it on the screen. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Look at this. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Five of the nine, here's your key concept. More than half of the attributes of the fruit of the spirit are the opposite of anger. It takes a replacement, a transformation, making us different. See, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't come from working hard. It doesn't come from self-discipline. We are supposed to work on the spiritual disciplines, but the transformation doesn't come from me saying, okay, okay, I'm gonna grit my teeth and not be angry anymore. These attributes only come as a miracle from God when we finally acknowledge that we can't be holy in ourselves, in this area or any area. No matter how we try, hard we try, we need a miracle. Which brings up an important point. You know, the main reason why the church is riddled with secret sin, just read Barna's work, riddled with secret sin in the church. The main reason is because we're missing out on the only thing that the church has to offer that no one else has to offer. Notice this. The world, you have an anger issue, you've got a place to go. The world offers what's called a self-help program. The world has lots of self-help programs. But unfortunately, some people think that Christianity is just another program, right? So some people have group therapy and some people have their psychiatrists and others go to anonymous this or anonymous that and some have the church. It's my program. But the church is a lousy self-help program. (laughs) See, the church is the one place where humans are supposed to get honest about the fact that if the answers to our problems are ourselves, if the answer to our problem is self-help, I'm toast. I'm in trouble. You finally give it up. I'm bankrupt. I can't do this. If something can't happen for me, I'm in trouble. And here's the great news. When we finally give up on finding our answers to the problems we not ourselves, Jesus is standing there waiting, and he says, ah, I wondered when you finally were gonna get it. You've tried your hardest to fix this, and you can't. So let me ask you, have you given the Holy Spirit permission to cleanse you, to transform you, or have you simply joined the Christian club? You see, what Jesus offers is more like radical surgery than just a bit of medicine, But see, some of us come to church just kind of looking for a little tweak here and there to make us a little better. Um, And you know what? If that's what you're looking for, Jesus isn't your answer. Jesus isn't isn't another self-help program. Jesus is into amputations (laughs) and being crucified with him 
and dying to ourselves so that he can now live through his amazing power in us and we are literally changed. Um, but if you come to the end of yourself and if you're willing to have the Holy Spirit do drastic procedures in your life, guess what? You can actually be a new creation. You can actually have victory in this. And application number three, here's your blanks. Sinful anger doesn't have to be loud, violent, or even obvious. Sinful anger doesn't have to be loud, violent, or even obvious. This is a bummer for some of you. <laughs> some of you are thinking, I don't have an anger problem. I don't yell at my family. I don't throw anything across the room. I don't beat my kids. I don't abuse my spouse. This is great. Went to church today. Great day at church. Some might, uh, the quiet, passive wallflower folks are sitting there saying, preach it, Dan. Preach it, man. Um, this is a great message, dot, 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 for my husband, for my wife, for my friend, for my boss. Great, great message. Um, I don't have an anger problem. I never blow up. So let me clarify something. We tend to only associate anger problems with those who rage, those who lose it. And Saul's a great example of it this morning, right? But don't miss something. It's important to understand that horrible consequences can come from passive anger. It's easy to, uh, for calm people to think that this is only an issue for those with short tempers. But Saul's life showed that a part of his anger response was really subtle. Think back in the story. When Saul encouraged Michael to marry David, his real motivation wasn't his love for his daughter. What was his real motivation? His hatred for David. That's why he wanted his daughter to get married. But even his family and his close friends would have listened to Saul when he said, oh, David, marry Michael, and Michael, marry David. David they, you love each other. This is, isn't this a wonderful thing? Those closest to him would have interpreted his approval of marriage as a really good thing. So don't miss this picture. Let me, let me give you the picture. King Saul, standing at the front of the church with David and all the groomsmen, right? It's the wedding day. And then his daughter enters in her beautiful wedding dress and she has a look of delight in her eyes. It's the greatest day of her life and the organ starts playing the wedding march, right? So ready, here, here comes the bride. And it's, I mean, the place is, can you imagine? It's a king's daughter's wedding, what it looked like. Um, so Saul has a huge smile on his face. And guess what the people think about Saul? Oh, what a great father he is. And they're touched by the obvious joy that he's sharing in his precious daughter's wedding. But all the while, what's he thinking? This is great. My daughter's gonna be a snare to David and she'll unknowingly betray him to the Philistines. All of this going on in his mind. And when David's dead, I'll be there to comfort my daughter in her bereavement. And best of all, no one will ever know. Wow. Here's the key concept, write it in. Some of the most devastating consequences of anger can come from subtle, passive anger. Some of the most harmful results can be hidden behind a very cool facade. So let me give you some examples. Have you ever been in a situation where you just sit quietly and you don't give the slightest hint that you're bothered 
But you're thinking to yourself, just you wait. You're not even going to see it coming. And you're never going to know that it was me. But I am going to get you back. Ooh, never threw anything across the room. But oh my, that can be treacherous. So, do you quietly hide your pain rather than doing anything overtly and then say simply withhold your affection and your love? The the relationship just kind of grows cold. You never raised your voice, but because of your anger, you're withholding all kinds of things. Or, Or let me ask it this way. Even if you're not raising your voice or hurting anyone, are you making any decision in your life based upon your anger? So, do you move jobs over anger? Do you stop communicating with people because of anger? Do you gossip about people because of anger? Do you hope bad things will happen to them? Do you lose your friendships? Do you say, well, I'm not going to kill him, but I sure hope God does. Lord, please. Does anything like that happen? Do you just check out on people because you're mad? You see, it doesn't have to be overt to be really damaging and to turn you into a person who's driven by bitterness. So uh, Josh and worship team, come on up. As we close, let me ask some questions. Do you have a problem with your temper or losing control or outbursts of anger? Do you say things that hurt and things that you regret? Are you or others paying a price for the things that you did or said because you acted on your anger? Is there anyone close to you who's afraid of you? Listen, is there anyone who's close to you who's afraid of what you might do or what you might say when you're mad? Or maybe you have a problem with passive anger. And if that's the case, let me ask it this way. Is there anything you're doing in anger but nobody knows and everything looks fine on the outside, but you know you're angry and you're making decisions from that anger? Does your anger ever lead you to alter your decisions in the way that really isn't apparent to others outside, but deep inside you know the root of anger is controlling you? Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, I probably asked 10 of them, then the Lord is calling you to take three steps. First, my anger sin is no one else's fault. Take responsibility for your sin. Second, especially if it's secret, get an accountability partner and their job is to ask you frequently, how are you doing? What are you deciding? How are your relationships? Have you cut off anybody? And finally, recognize you need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit if you're going to really have victory over anger. So as the word has been opened this morning, maybe some of you have realized that you've compromised your witness uh, to people around you, or maybe you've surrendered the high ground and you've forfeited some of your influence in the life of your spouse or your children or at work or at school. Maybe you realize that if this is happening in the home, this can become generational. And you want in your generation, you want it to stop, to stop. Not again. 
that the brokenness, the brokenness from here stops in my generation because, Lord, it's me standing in the need of prayer and I need transformation and, oh God, by your mercy, will you fix what I already did wrong and give me a new day where that day is over? I wonder if this morning some would be willing to admit that you can't fix your anger yourself. Truth be told, you need a miracle. You need a deliverance. And you need your deliverance, whether it's outbursts and hurtful words or hidden pouting, subtle paybacks, or passive aggressive behavior, right? Just withholding your affection. So as we sing this morning, I just want everyone to just remain quietly seated. Let's spend some time with the Lord, asking him to reveal any area where he wants to cleanse us in this issue and replace it with kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Wouldn't, you love, wouldn't that be a beautiful epitaph? When I saw them, no matter how close, far, distant, or way inside, best friend, that the epitaph would be, wow, that was a person who was described by kindness, gentleness, and self-control. There's not a person here who can do that. Only the spirit of Jesus transforming us can do that. If there are specific steps you need to take, specific people you need to ask forgiveness from during this time, you may want to flip your notes over. Don't look on anybody else's paper. You may want to write down a name or, or a situation or something with it. You know the spirit saying, you need to make this right. So, as the worship band sings for us, during these moments, let's allow the Lord to work in us and transform us and free us from sinful anger. Josh, go ahead.